0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, the founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Cal, it's always a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Thank you very much, Dan. It's always fun to be on the program with you. And uh, we have a lot of interesting things to talk about in the developments related to uh, biblical earth stewardship, and economic development for the poor are the two major focuses of uh, the Cornwall Alliance, along with the gospel of Christ, and particularly in terms of what's happening in the, uh, in the public arena uh, related to climate change and things attached
0: to that. Yeah, really, we hear a lot about it. Can you tell us really quickly, though, about the Cornwall Alliance and who all is involved?
1: Yeah, uh, the Cornwall Alliance is a network of uh, just short of 70 Christian scholars. Uh, uh, Most of them are natural scientists or economists or theologians, philosophers, ethicists, um, including some of the world's top climate scientists, by the way, um, since we are going to be discussing that topic today. Uh, And we seek to educate the public and policymakers regarding Biblical earth stewardship, uh, how we can, as uh, human beings, uh, be good stewards of God's earth, uh, fulfilling the command in uh, Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, Uh, looking for a dominion that reflects God's own dominion, one that enhances the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors, and uh, how also we can work to, uh, to promote economic development for the very poor around the world, I uh, think primarily in, pl- in terms of places like sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia and Latin America, where many people live truly at the verge of starvation much of the time. And uh, thank God, the percentage of the human population that is living in those conditions has fallen drastically in the last... Uh, 50 years, even in the last 20 years, uh, to now something on the order of about, uh, oh, under 15%, which is far better than than ever in human history. And we're thankful for that. But We want people to understand how it is that societies grow and stay out of poverty, and how their their treatment of the natural world around them uh, is related to that. Uh, So, we want to protect the world's poor from harm, uh, from environmental wrongdoing, uh, and sometimes that environmental wrongdoing is done in the name of protecting the environment.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a strange irony, indeed. Let's talk a little bit, at the very beginning here, about carbon dioxide and its effect on the heating or cooling or whatever of our environment.
1: Yeah. Well, carbon dioxide is what uh, physicists refer to as an infrared-absorbing gas. Infrared, uh, the the, um, simpler word for that is heat. Infrared is heat, and carbon dioxide and a variety of other gases absorb heat and then radiate it back out. The most important uh, infrared-absorbing or heat-absorbing gas in the atmosphere is water vapor. Uh, That accounts in terms of water vapor and then also clouds, which are condensed water vapor, uh, actually water liquid form, but it's still in clouds up in the air. Water vapor and clouds uh, account for almost 95% of the total heat absorption done by the atmosphere, absorbing heat that is bouncing from the surface of the Earth back out to space. Heat comes initially from the sun in the form of light, And then as it strikes the Earth's surface, it is transformed into heat, and it radiates back out towards space. Now, if none of the heat that comes from the sun radiated back into space, well, the Earth would be boiling hot, and there would be no life here. If all of it bounced back into space, the Earth would be extremely cold, and there would be no life here. Uh, But instead, we have a wonderful atmosphere, I think designed by God, to give us a... uh, a livable temperature range on the planet. On the average, globally, it's about 59 degrees Fahrenheit, 15 degrees Celsius. Uh, It's obviously colder toward the poles than it is toward the equator. That has to do with the tilt of the Earth and its rotation around the sun and so on. But if there were no greenhouse gases, the Earth would freeze. If greenhouse gases were far more dense than they are, it would burn up. But we've got a great balance. Water vapor accounts for about 95%, uh, carbon dioxide for about 4.5%, and then methane and ozone and a variety of trace gases that make up the other half percent. And some people think that that 4.5% of carbon dioxide is really the driver of global average temperature, that it determines what global temperature is going to be. Uh, And they have generated computer models that seek to demonstrate how the atmosphere and the oceans and the land interact and respond to a change in CO2 concentration. Uh, interestingly enough, they have designed those models specifically to rule out the possibility of natural causes of changes in global average temperature. Well, if you do that, I mean, if you, if you say from the start, we're not going to consider any causes other than carbon dioxide. Then when you ask what's causing the temperature changes, you're obviously going to get the answer, carbon dioxide. But the actual uh, reality is that we have empirical measurements over thousands of years uh, that we can get from ice cores and other sources uh, showing that carbon dioxide and temperature have changed uh, without sound correlation, without strong correlation. And uh, in fact, the most important driver of global temperature is not CO2, but the sun itself, which has a variety of cycles in the intensity of, of the energy that it puts out, and then also cycles in our oceans, the Pacific oscillation, the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, the Atlantic decadal oscillation, and other things like that. Anyway, CO2 does not drive global temperature. It contributes to it, uh, but it contributes a very small amount.
0: Well, that's very helpful. I'm shocked, almost, that people go first to the CO2 and uh, act like, oh, that's the, that's the big deal here when it's uh, yeah. such a small effect. Um, I'm also troubled by modeling. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the modeling. Um, there are many variables, and if you don't sufficiently account for each variable, and truthfully then build a model and then fold back and say, okay, let me calibrate my model to reality, uh, the models are worthless, it seems to me.
1: You were asking about the models, and, um... You mentioned that you have to calibrate the models, and and there are a lot of different factors involved. Well, yeah. In fact, the uh, planet system is probably the most complex system we've ever studied, uh, with the exception of the human brain and DNA. There are thousands of feedback factors in the climate system, and we actually don't know how to quantify the vast majority of those. In fact, for a number of them, we don't know whether they are positive or negative feedbacks, that is, whether they would increase or decrease the effect of some new stimulus that would tend to make the uh, the world warmer or cooler. And so as long as we don't know that answer for those thousands of feedback mechanisms, we really are kind of playing games in modeling. Now, the computer models that we have of the climate system are incredibly complex. They are some of the most uh, complex computer programs that we have. They run on, on uh, you know, supercomputers. Uh, and it takes days to run them through to give a forecast out to a hundred years or so. Uh, tremendous examples of technology, and yet they are still only models, which really means that they are only hypotheses you know in scientific thinking. We try to understand how something in the world works, and we get a hypothesis. That's a guess, really, as to how it works. Then we make predictions based on that guess of what we ought to see in the real world or in the, uh, in the laboratory, if the guess is right. Then we observe in the real world or in the laboratory, and if our observations contradict the predictions, then our hypothesis, our guess, was wrong. And that's basically the scientific method. Well, the problem with the computer models of the climate is that those models predict, forecast, uh, create scenarios calling for anywhere from two to four times as much warming from added CO2 alone as we actually observe from all factors over the last 40 years or so, uh, the period covered by the most accurate temperature measurement system that we have for the globe, which is the satellite system. So the models obviously run way too hot. They exaggerate the warming. uh, And in fact, uh, if only less than half of the warming comes from added CO2, which is quite likely, uh, according to a new article published in the Journal of Climate last, uh, last year by Judith Curry and Nick Lewis, Uh, then the models actually overstate CO2's warming effect not by two to four times, but by four to eight times. So, you know, CO2 is not such a big warmer, but it does have a wonderful positive effect, and that is that it feeds plants. CO2 is used by plants in photosynthesis. They absolutely must have it, and the more that they have, the better they grow, and that means more food for everything that eats plants or eats something that does eat plants. And that's great news, especially for the world's poor, because it makes food more abundant and more affordable.
0: Well, it's uh, very interesting. and You mentioned um, Judith Curry. I came across some of her work the other day online, yeah. and uh, yeah. she she has done a very good job on what she has documented there.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, in fact, she, uh, she used to be in the other camp. She used to be among the alarmists with the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. About 10 years ago or so, she sort of committed apostasy, so to speak. She actually became willing to read what the critics were saying. Uh, She began reading the uh, Climate Audit blog and then other things, and she decided, uh, you know what, there's some really good science being done over here. And little by little, she switched from thinking that CO2's warming effect was very large to thinking that it's very small and surely not dangerous. Uh, I think that's the the mark of a good scientist, is someone who's willing to change, change her mind in light of more evidence.
0: Oh, yeah, no question about it. Uh, today we're talking with E. Cal Beisner, and he heads up the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And, uh, you know, that's a very big part of this equation, Cal, and I'm so glad that uh, you're structured around it, that of stewardship of creation, can you talk to that just a little bit more, and how whatever we do it needs to fall out to the flourishing of people?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, the, when when God put us here on this earth, He made us in His image, and He told us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Now, as some people think that that verse, Genesis one twenty-eight. Um, has been used by Christians over the centuries as an excuse to abuse, to exploit, to waste the resources that we develop from this planet, Uh, and just to treat it badly. Uh, we're, We're told by some people, oh, you Christians just think that after all, the earth is going to burn up in the end, and God will replace it with a new earth, and therefore you don't need to take good care of it. Now, actually, I don't know any serious Christian scholar in the whole history of Bible interpretation who has ever argued that way. I think that's a a total caricature. But instead, what we should do is to to look at the context of Genesis 128. Uh, When we see that God created us in his image and instructed us to have dominion over the earth, we should ask, well, what is God's dominion like? And we get that from the earlier verses of Genesis chapter 1. God made everything out of nothing. Uh, He brought order out of chaos. He brought light out of darkness. He brought life out of non-life. He brought a great variety of life, and he told all the different varieties of life to be fruitful and multiply themselves. Uh, So God, obviously, um, uses his dominion over the earth for uh, wonderful uh, blossoming of life, uh, for beauty, for order. And our dominion should reflect that. That's why at the Cornwall Alliance, we describe biblical earth stewardship or godly dominion as men and women made in God's image, laboring lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and to the benefit of our neighbors, so that really we're addressing the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor.
0: That's beautiful. I love it. And I recall some time ago when we talked with you once upon a time, you had experience living in another culture where things were harder. Can you take us back and just describe that briefly, some of the things that you saw?
1: Yes. Yes, as a child I lived in India, and uh, for a time my mother was paralyzed, and so I had to be walked by the hand to uh, to a home, an Indian home, where I would spend the day because my father was at work and my mother was paralyzed. And along the way, I would see two things uh, that stuck in my memory uh, as pictures, just uh, vibrant pictures. Uh, One was a beautiful, beautiful, tall green tree in the courtyard of the apartment complex where we lived uh, that had a vine hanging from it with bright red flowers. And that always has spoken to me of the beauty of God's creation. But the other picture memory, or actually a bunch of picture memories that I have from that period of my life, was that uh, as we walked from our apartment complex, a number of blocks to the Indian home where I stayed, I would step over the bodies of dozens of people who had died overnight of starvation and disease, and this was every day for six months, Uh, so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bodies that I would have stepped over at that young age. And the pictures of that just are imprinted in my mind. And that spoke to me, and has always spoken uh, to me, of the horrors of poverty. And so as I became a Christian, as I uh, began to study God's Word, and I was concerned to communicate the gospel to the lost, and to uh, to bring the the transforming power of Christ and the Word of God to people's lives, I realized that a care for the beauty of God's creation and a care for the poor must always go hand in hand. And indeed, as people rise out of poverty, they're able to take better care of the earth that surrounds them. You know, If, if you want to see severe pollution, Uh, serious filth. You don't go to the richer part of town, you go to the poorer part of town. You don't go to the richer countries, you go to the poorer countries. And that's because a clean, healthful, beautiful environment is a costly good. And like any other costly good, wealthier people can afford more of it than poorer people can. And so if you really, as an environmentalist, uh, if you are, uh, if you really care about the the cleanliness and the beauty and the safety of the earth, uh, you ought to want everyone to be lifted out of poverty because you want everyone to be able to afford what it costs to have a clean, healthful, beautiful environment.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. I really appreciate that. Now, uh, we have maybe five minutes left. Where do fossil fuels fit into this in terms of being responsible for our environment, um, having a clean environment? Can we also have fossil fuel consumption in that scenario?
1: Well, the way I would put it is I don't think we can have a clean, healthful, beautiful environment without fossil fuels. Uh, Fossil fuels are what lifted humankind out of widespread severe poverty. The fact is, energy is essential to everything we do. Obviously, to the very living of our bodies, we need energy, and we get that for our bodies from food. But we also need energy for light, for heat, for cooling, for transportation, for communications, for manufacturing, for the shipment of food, from farm to market, and from market to home, for the cooking of food. Energy is essential to everything that we do. And the more energy you have, the more you can do. And that means the more wealth you can create, the more medical care you can afford, the more transportation, and so on. And fossil fuels, uh, at this point, provide about 85% of all the energy consumed on Earth uh, all around the world. And they do that precisely because they are the most abundant, affordable, reliable source of that. Now, it is possible to use fossil fuels in a way that's quite filthy. You can burn coal to generate electricity uh, in coal-burning plants that don't have uh, scrubbers uh, and therefore don't remove the particulate matter and the toxic metals and toxic gases that come out as as you burn coal. You can do that. But we stopped doing that in the United States more than 30 years ago. Uh, In fact, in most places, more than 40 years ago. And essentially, that's the case all around the world in developed countries. Uh, But that way of burning coal, a clean way, where the only thing that comes out of the uh, cooling towers is water vapor and carbon dioxide, both of which are really good for the world, not bad for it, burning coal that way is expensive. And so it's as societies grow richer that they get to the, to the point where they can afford the clean use of fossil fuels. But that's a, a very important thing, and the, the truth is that the renewables, wind and solar and other such things that some people want to substitute for fossil fuels, are not abundant, affordable, and reliable, and wind up raising the cost of energy and therefore of everything else. That's not good for people. Uh, But fossil fuels uh, have another benefit, and that is that they transfer our production of energy from the surface of the Earth to below the surface, because we mine them from deep down inside the Earth. If we were to stop burning fossil fuels, we would have to burn all the forests of the world to provide the energy that we need for a single year. Uh, That would wipe out the vast majority of of, uh, space for natural wildlife. That would be a terrible thing. So instead of doing that, uh, we, we get our energy from down deep inside the Earth where it doesn't bother anybody.
0: Uh, that's very helpful, indeed. And uh, just a quick, how do you see nuclear energy?
1: I think nuclear is a tremendous resource. Unfortunately, a lot of people are more afraid of it than they should be. It's actually, in terms of, of the history of, of nuclear energy generation, uh, it is the safest form of energy generation that we have, and that that accounts, including the storage of spent fuel. Uh, mm-hmm. It's extremely safe and very, very reliable, and if it were not for the unnecessarily uh, extreme regulations on it, it would actually be the cheapest way we have of generating electricity. Uh, so we need to educate the public on that, and... and uh, policymakers as well. I think over the long haul, nuclear is going to become probably the most important and the biggest source of energy for mankind. It's just going to take time for the public to overcome misplaced fears, and I think that can happen. Uh, uh, I would hope that a lot of your listeners would come to cornwallalliance.org. That's Cornwall Alliance. Dot org. We have a lot of educational material on our website, all, all of it, uh, all of the articles free, things like that, books and DVDs and other uh, resources through our online shop. And we have a, uh, an electronic newsletter that uh, we send out through email, and people can subscribe to that totally free, and it's always
0: educational. Well, that's wonderful. It's, it's a great honor to talk with you today. Our guest has been Dr. E. Cal Beisner, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And Cal, thank you so much for taking your time today and talking with our listeners.
1: Well, Dan, thank you very much for having me on the show, and may the Lord bless your continued ministry there.
0: Well, thank you, and same to you. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.
2: Flashing, nor all of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Let your king. follow not with fears for gladness breaks like It is in heaven Thy cross is lifted O'er us We journey in its light We follow as you guide us Lead on